Hey there, listeners. Thanks for listening to Coffee and Consoles. We greatly appreciate it. If you would, please give us a five-star rating, whichever platform you're consuming this on. It helps new people find the show. We appreciate it. See you next time. listening to NPR Jazz Blues After Midnight <laughs> John and boy Kevin boy. how you doing I'm doing well how are you Excellent I'm feeling all right And you guys are in Coffee and Consoles Coffee and Consoles Are you drinking coffee CNC. right now I am What you got From a local joint Caliber Coffee Caliber ah right yeah, down the street right down home. the street from your home It's a good place I think they said this is Something medium, something Mexican. That's all I got from it. <laughs> sounds sounds very informative. Mm-hmm. Has a very berry aftertaste, almost you could Has say. A berry, a berry good aftertaste. Yes, a berry good aftertaste. I see. Yeah. Well, John, what are we gonna talk about today? Well, I believe this is your choice. Mm, it is my choice. This is your selection. We're going way back. Way back. 74 years. 74 years. Our first one was 50 years ago. 50 years. I think we're just going to keep going back until there's no recordings left. We're not that far. I know. No. Back to 1945, end of World War II. That's right. Almost. Well, let's see. World War II. Do you recall what month it ended in? I, my wife would kill me right now. But I'm not sure. VE Day is what it's. Well, there's VE and VJ. Yeah, Day. that's victory true. In Europe, victory in Japan. For v- Valentine's Day, Day in Japan and Valentine's Day. VE is that right? Day was May 8th. So this is probably just after. I feel like it was. I don't recall. Well, this actually came out in September. So we are okay, almost so just on the after. Cusp. Yes, yeah. Ah, and VJ Day was was August. So oh yeah, yeah. VE ended right before mm-hmm. the summer, late spring. Yeah. VJ Victory in Japan ended in summer, in August fifteenth. Summer. And yeah. This came out just a couple months later. Just a couple in September. And of course, the song we're talking about. It's been a long, long time. It's been a long, long time, as recorded by your man, your idol, right? My idol. I don't know. I mean, Les Paul is definitely, it's definitely not a, a bad one to uh, to idolize and look up to. He has done. No, I'm talking about his rhythm guitarist, uh, <laughs> Mr. Atkins, Jim Atkins, half brother to the legendary Chet Atkins. That reminds me in uh, <laughs> in hockey. I'm I'm an NHL fan. In hockey, the uh, best brother tandem to ever play the game yeah. is Wayne Gretzky and his brother. He had his, a, what he had his, a brother yeah but his brother only ended up scoring like 20 points or something oh. <laughs> but he's still he's he's it's the the, the team is oh my Wayne god and his brother the best brother team to ever play uh. the game point wise <laughs> family dinners are always like why can't you be more like your brother why can't wayne you be more like wayne why can't you be more like chet yes why can't you just be the greatest hockey player ever why can't you just be the most one of the most influential guitarists ever <laughs> Les Paul is one of the most influential True. engineers ever. He he really perfected multi-track recording. Uh, he's I think he's 
accredited with actually inventing it. Yeah, yeah. He's uh, one of the few musicians in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and I believe like the Inventors Hall of Fame. Wow. Because there is such a thing. So, yeah, he was a... He's a modern titan. Day, uh, He's a titan of the Renaissance man, you could say, yeah. or Renaissance man. Re- Renaissance. Renaissance man, uh, the Da Vinci of his time, in a sense. He really is someone. To, if you don't know a lot about Les Paul, and more wife, than the name on the headstock, definitely yeah, more than the name on the headstock. The popular, always popular, Les Paul guitar, but did many things for for music and recording. Yeah, technology. He he was really a kind of a, an amazing amazing guy and had many hits with his uh i think you were going to say his wife his mary, wife mary ford mary ford who's was also her, a guitarist do you know her real name that was her stage name i can't remember oh, her real no, name i don't we'd have to look it up yeah we'll have to look it up yeah. i think that was a test question i once had in, in college it's a interesting test question yeah it was a recording technology uh, class interesting took it at 8 a.m they were blasting a, were all the test questions just like like such and such real name was you know Bob Dylan's real name was, you know. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Freddie like, Mercury's real name was. Who received the first royalty <laughs> for their music, I believe. Uh, who, who would that be? I think, oh, man, Caruso maybe? Oh, wow. Maybe I wouldn't not. know. <laughs> and then like who invented the gramophone? Emil Berliner. <laughs> ah, yeah. <laughs> Stuff like that. Yeah. It was great. It actually comes in handy every once in a while. Yeah. You know? Trivia nights at the old pub. Oh, yeah. Everyone, everyone needs to know what what year and by who the gramophone was invented yeah right but the reason i i picked this song is i really just adore this recording i i don't know there's something about it it's not a good recording when you you know yeah it's not to say that i mean the singing's great the playing's great it's very very stripped down recording but yeah it's not Especially by today's standards, not a pristine recording. Right, technically Probably speaking. Probably even by... I bet in 1945, it was a pretty good recording. Yeah. I bet it was pretty decent. Like his... Um, do you know the other version of the song that came out this same year? No. And this is like interesting fact and like the difference of the music industry back then and today, although sometimes it doesn't seem like there's much of a difference. But there is another version of It's Been a Long, Long Time, same song. Same song. That reached number one by, uh, I believe his name was Harry James, and had vocals by Kitty Kalen. Oh. And it was more of a orchestra piece. Okay. Most listeners might even recognize it these days because it was played at the end of the last Avengers movie, Endgame. Really? When, spoilers, a certain captain is dancing with his lady friend at the end, and they're playing ah. It's Been a Long, Long Time as recorded by Harry James and his orchestra. You know, it's funny you bring that up because the uh, the kind of the, the sediment, I believe that's the word. Sure, yeah. Not, not sediment, which is a... No, that would a be geology the wrong... term. Yeah, wrong word. <laughs> um, but back in 1945, you know, it, it took people a few months to get home from the war. Exactly. So this song would have been coming out right as the servicemen were all getting off the ships yes. and trains and... Planes and, and the sediment of the tune is exactly. <laughs> did I say sediment? Yeah. <laughs> the sentiment of the tune is is perfect for the time because it's yeah. exa- it's exactly that. The person singing, longing for their loved one to finally come home. It's been a long, long time, which makes it as a perfect song at the end of Avengers Endgame, and also of its time too. Middle of nineteen forty-five. <laughs> 
the cinematic universe of Marvel, I believe, lasted much longer than World War II. So in a certain sense, it has yes. been a long, long time. Yes, exactly. Although, I don't know if there was quite the emotional trauma waiting for the next installment as a Maybe war. not. Maybe two different things, apples and oranges. But uh, <laughs> So that orchestral version of Harry James, it reached number one. And it was overtaken by this Bing Crosby really? recording of the same exact song. It's one of the oh. few instances that the same song reaches number one in a row. And of course, the song is credited to uh, the writing duo of, I believe they're a couple uh, New York songwriters, which a lot of these songs in the time were coming, you know, Tim from Pinelli. New York. Yeah. Uh, Jewel Stein and Sammy Kane are the ones credited as the writers. But yeah, back then it was common for labels to just record their own version of a popular song. And so you'd have competing songs going after each other, competing recordings of the well, same you, song. You know why that may have been the case is, so back in that time, you still had people listening to music on phonographs. You still had people with gramophones. There was, yep. there was even a high-tech uh, version called the Diamond Disc Recorder, I believe, which was Ooh. an Edison thing. I don't think I've heard of that one. Yeah, it, it, it died out. It's kind of it's kind of like the title of the, the diamond 1930s, disc, thirties and forties. But yeah, was that like the laser disc of its time? Maybe? Yeah, <laughs> use a, a a diamond stylus to read the grooves, and and got you got better. That seemed expensive. Sound quality. It was expensive. Yeah. But the reason it died wasn't because it was expensive. It was because it couldn't play any other manufacturer's music. And Thomas oh, Edison. Interesting. Was, it was like the Apple of its time, in a sense. Yeah. Well, well <laughs> you but, can only use this port. But worse than that, <laughs> he hated pretty much every other style of music other than classical. So he wouldn't allow anything to be produced oh, other than classical recordings. Edison. Oh. Yeah. He was a. It was kids in there. Gosh darn jazz. Yeah, kids in their <laughs> loud morals and <laughs> big band music and swinging. <laughs> so that died out. But if you bought, say, an RCA machine versus a, um, I don't even know, an AT&T machine or a machine from another manufacturer, a lot of mm-hmm. times you they couldn't play any other music than what was made for it. And even within the same company, they would have different speeds that the machines played back at. So you would have to match the speed of the machine with the, the speed of the disc to get the right pitch yeah, and, and length. Unless and, you just get the chipmunk singing back to you. Oh, it, it was the wild west. It was crazy. Like, I was reading about this before the show and I was just thinking it's kind of like digital music and file type, you know, like sure, kind of the early yeah. like 90s, like early 2000s. The bit rates and just everything was just formats. crazy. Nothing was standardized, oh you know. Gosh. So God, those, I can those I can, early days of Napster was just like awful transfer. Well, Lars, of Lars files. put a stop to that. Yeah, thanks, thanks, Lars. Thanks, Lars. Not really. <laughs> so I can understand why if you had a hit song, another company, I believe RCA for Bing Crosby or Decca. Yeah, Decca. It was Decca. Um, had RCA on the brand. Decca would would want to put out their own version to be played on on their own machines. Makes sense. It's crazy. Thinking about that. It'd be like, I was thinking today, like, hardly to even get, I mean, we'll get maybe remakes or re-recordings of older songs, like a cover of a song, but usually they're years apart, decades apart. Mm -hmm. But it'd be like having, like, say, that Marin Moore song, The Middle, 
like having one of the other female artists version come out and then Marin Mur- like Morris a, like putting a Taylor her Swift version. Yeah, or like an Ariana Grande, which backstory to that song in the middle is that it was just in the works kind of in the pipeline forever, like being sent to many different female artists and none of them were jiving correctly. And I can't remember who exactly tried it, but it wasn't until Marin Morris that they finally put it out. But that would be like an example, like you'd have essentially the same song put out by a couple different artists from different labels. And how interesting would it be if they had released at the same time? Yeah, what I mean, what happens especially in, to, in today's world with social media, if you'd get like camps back in one version than the other. Like, no, oh, this yeah. is the real song. This is the real version. This one came out four weeks before that yeah, one. Yeah, right? They know the other <laughs> one was probably in production for months. Gosh, you know? yeah, right. This is the real Old Town Road, not that third remix. <laughs> mm. So anyway, it's been a long, long time, my friend. And we have some fun things to talk about this recording, this song about Les Paul and his trio backing up the great Bing Crosby. And I was just wondering, like, it's credited as Bing Crosby with Les Paul and his trio. Who's the third guy? Is that what you're wondering? Yeah, because I was looking everywhere, and we mentioned the uh, rhythm guitarist, Jim Atkins, the half-brother to Chet Atkins. Um, in his trio, he had a percussionist, Ernie Newton, but I couldn't find any information on who would be the bass player. Ah. And then when you listen to this song, you'll notice that there are no drums or any sort of percussion they, at they all. You need them. <laughs> no, no, I don't need them. There's upright bass, obviously, that's with the upright bass and the uh, rhythm guitar, I mean, that's, in a sense, your, I mean, that is your rhythm section. That's the percussive feel, like the pulses from those two. So, yeah, just kind of curious, like, does he call his, is it Les Paul and his trio inclusive of Les Paul? Or is it Les Paul and three other guys in the trio? So who's that last guy? It's interesting, right? Because if you're Les Paul and you say, hi, we're the Les Paul trio, yeah. then it's, it's inclusive, right? Yeah. But if you say, I'm Les Paul with my trio... Yeah, then you think there'd be three other pr- people, right? Yeah, it's kind of like Johnny and his orchestra. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> unless, it's, unless it's the Johnny Orchestra. The Johnny Orchestra, yeah, in which case maybe you're the first chair violin player. Yeah, I know. Or let's really make him mad, the first chair fiddle player. Sure, yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> like, I'm Eric Clapton in my trio cream. Yeah, like, yeah. But, <laughs> yeah, I bet. I was just curious about that. I bet they probably had a uh, rotating cast of characters. Yeah, unless it was something. just a studio player of the day laying down the upright bass on this one. Any listeners who may know who the upright bass player was on this, please let us know. <laughs> yeah, we'd, we'd love to know. 1945, Les Paul. What's on your mind? You well, said you brought this up. You love the the song? I do. The recording of the time. It was it was introduced to me by a teacher when I was in college in that same class we were speaking about earlier. And Mary Ford's real name? Yeah, exactly. I don't know why, but I kinda the class was at eight AM, you know, and they were blasting, so like the building shook every once in a while because they were building a new parking garage and you know, there was bedrock. So it was hard to pay attention in that class because it was so early and there's all these distractions. But something Here's about- a distraction. Iris Summers was her real name. Really? 
See, Iris. I had no idea. I couldn't remember. I can't remember that. I mean, that's a good name too. That'd be a good stage Iris name. Summers? Yeah, Iris Summers. Maybe maybe back in the 30s and 40s it was a bit too uh bit too foreign. For, maybe, yeah. For the, uh, like that sounds too much like a flower. <laughs> Could you name yourself after a car instead? Maybe she loved Fords. I don't know. You know, yeah. But I I started listening to the song. Yeah. And I just kind of actually like really fell in love with it. I don't, and I, I hadn't really listened to any older music other than like what we consider the classics, classic rock and stuff, but nothing that. Yeah. Only 50 years old. <laughs> yeah. Only 50 years old, not 75. Yeah. Right. And ever since then, I've, I've always kind of listened to it and really just appreciated it. I don't, it's something about it being released right at the end of war, World War II and what it must have meant for people listening to it at the time and mm-hmm. kind of puts things in perspective in your own life. And just from a an engineering standpoint, it's really in the middle of just pure chaos. I mean, it's right on the line of eras in recording. Yeah, yeah. And it kind of musically, too, because World War II, the end of it, is right around there is when you start to have this dividing line between we're on the cusp of early, what could be called early rock and roll and bebop as well, moving away from the traditional big band swing era which this is kind of like a smaller take on of that the swing style but yeah it's interesting and you're mentioning that we think that this is probably all just done with one mic yes listening to it i thought maybe there was a chance that they could have used multiple mics but yeah the more i listened to it the more i convinced myself rightly or wrongly, that I do believe it was done with one mic, and most likely that mic was an RCA 44. Yes. Because Bing Crosby was, you know, he did his radio show for years and years. Yeah, yeah. And Which I think this is, that's how uh, him and Les Paul first met, was Les Paul playing on his radio show. And right. Bing was a supporter of Les Paul. Yeah, they were actually, they actually became pretty good friends. Les Paul actually mm-hmm. built a studio in his garage <laughs> for, for Bing. Um who does that these days? <laughs> no one here in Nashville because yeah. it is illegal to have a home studio. Yes. Wink, wink, <laughs> technically. wink. <laughs> this technically is not a commercial facility. Yeah, that's true. I'm not paying you anything to be here. That's right. We're not getting paid anything. <laughs> Unless, am I? So, you're in the middle of the 40s. Mm-hmm. People are used to phonographs, gramophones, wax disc recordings. There's even arguments kind of like we have similarly today between mp3 and lossless wave files and, and sure. that kind of stuff they yeah. people were arguing over the merits of vertical uh, cutting and a lateral cutting so <laughs> yeah people arguing different merits of, of each type of recording method laterally or, or vertically uh laterally ended up winning winning out and this recording would have been done to a a wax disc so what that means is yeah so before vinyl before vinyl wax before tape before tape tape was actually discovered in world war ii it's invented in the 30s by the germans Mm -hmm. and they would use it for propaganda because you could record a speech and play it over and over again unlike the wire recorders and the wax discs you know phonograph type recorders at the time those would break down over just a few yeah they didn't last long at all that was invented then, but but we didn't have that in the United States. We were developing it, actually. It's kind of interesting. Like we were experimenting with putting ferric oxide on paper 
and trying to use that as tape. And we're trying all sorts of funky things like that to try and get a better recording medium. But it wasn't until we saw what the Germans did where we were like, oh, that makes total sense. We should do that. Yeah. So we did. <laughs> but this this would have been done to a wax disc. You have a stylus. And they would have kind of perfected this at this point. They've been using this method all the way from the beginning in the 1870s of essentially you have a sound source that creates some sort of vibration. Um, Now they didn't have, they weren't doing it electrically. They were doing it acoustically, but the Mm -hmm. principle is the same. And then the vibrations, whether it's transduced into an electrical current or it's an acoustical current will vibrate the stylus, which will then imprint the waveform on the wax. So then when you play it back, you, you get the opposite. You get the reproduction of the sound. So to cut it, you do this on soft wax. Then you would have to take that wax disc. Be very careful. It's probably in the same facility, though. Mm-hmm. So you have to, you know, hold it with feather fingers. If everyone could just see what Kevin's doing with his hands right now. Just, just lightly. I feel like he's uh, caress this record. Oh, so trying to tell me something with his hands (laughs) and his wiggling fingers. (laughs) Bring it, bring it to a machine that would electroplate it and create an electroplated metal disc of nickel or some other metal, and then you would use that to make reproductions on shellac. Shellac, which is kind of this. It's used a lot. Yeah, I don't think I know finish. what shellac is. It's okay, like, yeah, it's, it's you yeah. can buy like finished wood. You can, it's it's oh it's, sure yeah. I'm not a chemist, so I, I can't really tell you the ins and outs of it. But oddly enough, shellac records were mostly compressed of limestone. Actually, shellac only made up a small portion of it. It was the binder. Oh, okay. It's kind of like made it more. It's kind of like the egg in a uh, a burger when you use breadcrumbs, right? Oh, okay, and I the got limestone you. Was yeah, the breadcrumbs. it's the binding. <laughs> it's the binding. Yeah. So uh, it's good enough analogy. Then they would; those records would be would be pressed and then distributed for for sale. The crazy thing about shellac records is they only had a dynamic range of thirty decibels. So to the layperson, is that a lot? A little? That is not a lot. Not a lot. Yeah. Even <laughs> even our our worst recordings now are are over a hundred decibels of dynamic range. And and what what dynamic range is? is the difference between the softest noise you can hear on the record and mm-hmm. the loudest noise you can hear on the record. So you only have 30 decibels. Yeah. Which is why you have such a high noise floor. Most of that noise floor is actually contributed to the weight that is on the stylus cutting the material and the material okay. that's used to cut it. That's why when eventually we got vinyl, which you could make the grooves a lot smaller and you could cut it while the vinyl was warm and malleable. Okay. And then yeah. it would harden and, and be much less uh, fragile than a shellac. shellac. It's basically like a, a rock almost. Yeah, it's so crazy. And so the shellac records would would wear out after 75 to like 125-ish plays, and you would just be left with dust. Nothing, you know, it wouldn't play. It would be terrible. It almost sounds like a companies like putting, you know, selling out, you know, selling these shellac records to people like... Get it now and before it, you know. Kind of like iPhones, right? Yeah, exactly. Like <laughs> six months, you need to buy the same record again because you wore it out. Played. Exactly. Well, probably. I mean, when you buy a new record, how many times do you listen to it in a day? Especially back then when there's nothing else to do. Yeah, yeah. When Especially in, exactly, yeah, back then. Heck, I even think about when I 
would buy CDs as a teenager, you know, I'd play them multiple times that afternoon, maybe, or that evening when I'm doing my homework, just repeat play. Yeah. You know, if you played, are, it, if you played have, it once a day from when you got it, you would have about three months before yeah, about or three more, months. more or less like give it plus or minus a couple weeks. Yeah. Depending on your particular player. So I'm sure that was a thing back then. Like people would probably either hold back on playing it maybe for special occasions. That's right. Like the when they are entertaining, maybe. Entertaining, like, let me play this Bing Crosby record. It's only been played 53 times so far. That's right, yeah. <laughs> maybe they mark it on there somehow, have a little tally system. <laughs> it's, it's actually kind of incredible that we have any of these recordings left. Yeah, when you consider that, and I think you're telling me beforehand, like a lot of the masters would just be... Yeah, the, so the master, the master wax disc, yeah. yeah, would just be, they would wipe it clean and on to the next session. Yeah. I don't know how many uses they would get out of one, but I assume that you could kind of re-pour the wax and just kind of use them indefinitely. Uh, yeah, I suppose so, yeah. But maybe not. Maybe there's other, there's probably other maybe materials life, that break down yeah. and stuff. So by all technical standards, this is not incredibly great recording, but like I said, it just really speaks to me. Would you consider it almost like the equivalent of today, like someone just doing a quick home recording? Like I have a 57 at my house. I you know plugged it into a little, you know, like M Audio or Focusrite yeah. interface into my Garage Band or those, Logic. Those systems are vastly superior. Well, of course, superior <laughs> compared to that bit. Like the uh, not the ease, but just the the general nature of like at least I can get a recording of this and. Well, the, the crazy thing is, it was actually a, a fairly complex. It sounds like it system to actually do this. It took yeah. very smart people to like operate these machines because if you had a sound source that was too loud, then the needle could jump off of the wax and stop cutting the yeah, it stopped recording, recording or literally. You could accidentally have a a recording where you cut the grooves too deep if there was too much low end information. And yeah, a lot of these recordings, there's little low end. Mm-hmm. Little and, high end, just because it that couldn't just capture be, it. Well, okay, technically they couldn't capture it because of the wax. Yeah, but they could. Yeah, it's like sure. the microphones could pick it up. Yeah, so yeah, couldn't transfer it. I exactly. Guess you could say. It was fairly complex and difficult to do to make a recording that sounded as good as it's been a long, long time. Does it was actually very hard to do. And Les Paul was a pretty smart cat back. Les then. Paul was pretty smart. I don't know He's if he. Smart. I don't know if he engineered it or if he if he just played on it. Yeah, I don't know back then. I would suspect it was, there would absolutely need to be someone who was watching the the levels and of everything and mm-hmm. kind of oh yeah oh definitely you know, riding the game. So I guess technically he couldn't have engineered it, but he may have had a hand in the placement of the sure yeah of the band. I mean, he was like it's so funny like thinking back to those as you said like the almost like the wild west of recording back then and the technology that was changing in the whole process is like Les Paul's like credited for being like one of the pioneers of such things as mic placement and <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> it's like things that people wouldn't had it really consider at least on the large scale yet <laughs> well yeah and, and part of that is is it's kind of like when I give people mix um, advice a lot of times I'll say you know you have this beautiful, you have this beautiful uh, forest, and and there's a hill, and you're you're standing on top of this hill. It's almost a mountain, but but not quite. And there's a beautiful lake and a sunset, and some some more, you know, really nice mountainous 
terrain in the in the background of this scene, but you're focusing on the rock that's in front of you. Because I stubbed my toe on it. Right, damn it. Exactly. <laughs> and you're missing the bigger picture. Uh-huh, so yeah. so kind of the same way. They they had to like get a medium that could just be longer than four and a half minutes and could reproduce frequencies higher than four eight K mm-hmm. before they could were even worry about mic placement. More than a degree of just a pure amplitude volume standpoint. Yeah. Because you wouldn't even hear it, really. I got you, yeah. Because miking is a game of inches, centimeters sometimes. Yeah, definitely. To hear the nuances really requires some Mm -hmm. uh, better technology. I don't want to say better, but some more, more advanced technology than what they had at the time. Sure. So when they were recording this, I think you and I, we both concluded that Les Paul's definitely playing through an amp. I think so, yeah. Yeah, probably in the room with everyone else, you know, because it's all just one room microphone. I wouldn't be surprised if he made the amp himself. Yeah, I I was considering, like, what would it have been back then? Because there weren't many. It's not not like you could just walk down to a music store and pick up an electric guitar amplifier quite yet, if I'm not mistaken. No. I mean, they have been around before that, but still not a... It most likely it most thing. likely wasn't wasn't an amp specifically designed for guitar. It was probably just sure. an amp designed for anything that would produce an electrical current. Mm-hmm. Could have been could have could have been yeah. anything really. Yeah, I suppose so. Accordion. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> Who knows? Sounds great though. I actually really like it. Yeah, it's really cool. And it's like there's a little bit of Grit, and I don't know how much of that is somewhat low wattage amplifier or the uh, the microphone if it's from the mic, you know, picking up. Well, we can tell he d- definitely digs in when his uh, little like more solo features mm-hmm. come into the recording. It could be so. So the distortion, the thing with these old recordings is you have four or five different points of failure, if if you want to call it that. You can distort the actual material, the wax. Sure. Can distort the actual microphone element, mm-hmm. and you can distort the actual amp. And then there's even imperfections in the material in the mastering. We'll use mastering with air quotes around it. Could have even been distortion in the transfer of from this old shellac disc to the digital medium. It you know there's there's a lot of yeah, points of failure. How we can listen to it these days, you know how it sounds very much may not have been how it exactly sounded it's probably when a little it was first worse. put out. It's probably a little worse, obviously, yeah. yeah. Unless they have the metal disc master, yeah, which they very well may. Bing Crosby was a star, so they could have yeah, saved That's true, yeah. And maybe that's that could be where this came from. So it's either a perfect representation of the most perfect shellac disc you could get, <laughs> or it's a slightly worse version. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I like to think it's it's probably, they probably had the master, I, I presume, just considering how fragile these things were, yeah, I I as I gotta think that it was probably just some sort of machine that transferred it from the metal disc to the yeah. But I think so. thinking about it now, I bet they would have transferred it to tape in the fifties. By that point, yeah, because you would have been Decca would have been updating all their catalogs, so mm-hmm. you're getting an added noise floor. Yo, sure, definitely. So, yeah, I I revise my stance. I think this is a, just a little worse. Than <laughs> <laughs> just a little worse. Nice.
but nearly perfect. Is there anything musically about it that kind of sticks out to you, or is it just kind of your standard Bing Crosby 40s tune? Well, yes and no. Like, it's of that time period, like, it does follow a fairly standard song form. Just repetition of a 16 measure phrase in the key of C, if I'm not mistaken. And it just, I mean, mainly focuses on your one chord. To your five, and then your two minor. The interesting thing, though, with this tune, and many other songs you'd hear this, would be all those kind of, you can look at it from the macro or the micro perspective. The macro perspective is, it's a C chord, C chord, C chord for a while, and then it gets to a G7 chord, and then Ooh. D minor chord, I don't know, D minor, G7, D minor, G7, D minor, G7, back to C. And then eventually the C becomes a C7, leads you to your four chord, F. And then one of the few, like, of the time, commonly heard, like, I guess technically you'd call it a borrowed chord. Like a B-flat dominant seven. Takes you back to the C. And then it goes to the six. And now that's a seven, so it's an A7. To the two seven, D7, five, back to one. But even among a lot of those chords, especially at the beginning, you follow the melody, you hear this. That little descending line's kind of occurring over that C chord. And then they do a similar thing from D minor. And so you put that into the uh, context of the other chords and you get some, you know, technically it's like C, and then C major seventh, and C six, D minor, probably A seven or D minor over C sharp, then D minor seven to G seven. So that gets into the more like micro perspective of it when you have to start considering the melodic line that's going on, the melodic line of the vocals. And so that kind of has to change your voicing just slightly. That's a great chord. What chord is that? That's your G7 with a raised fifth, oh. a G7 augmented. Super common of the time. That's kind of like, getting a little like bluesy before things really got kind of like bluesy in the rock sense. It has just a little spice to it. So mm. There's a little sexiness to it. A bit yeah. like a, you know, not a scary sexiness to it that would, you know, come later on. But those augmented five chords are great. Yeah. And so like, yeah, Les Paul, he's making use of a lot of that kind of inside voice movement taken from the melody line and even has he starts his solo 
essentially he's just repeating the vocal line that Bing sang, just with a little bit more phrasing, you know, some more little twirly things and a little flair thrown in. Like he was very, uh, Les Paul, very influenced by Django Reinhardt, especially in these early years for Les Paul. Like he was a big Django Reinhardt fan. For those who don't know, he was a gypsy jazz guitarist. Still listen to Django Reinhardt today, and it's still incredible playing, considering that he was only using about two, two and a half fingers in his uh, fretting hand due oh, to an really? accident. Yeah, I believe it was a fire accident, if I'm not mistaken, that basically disabled half of his fingers. So he was a big influence on Les Paul. And when you listen to his playing on this, you can definitely tell that he had Django on his mind, like especially a lot of those little trilly things that he's playing. And you know, at this point, guitar players may not know this, maybe even most other musicians may not know this, literally due to the limitations of most guitars, you couldn't really bend your strings that much. Like you, at most, you could bend a string a half step. And you hear some of that, you know, the second part. Those little half step bends. Mm -hmm. That was a Django thing. Like Django would do some of those, you know. That little thing. But, you know, the strings were thicker back then because a lot of the times you're still playing on big jazz box guitars, you know, big uh, hollow body guitars. Kind of like this thing that we have right here. Well, which what is do your, you have uh, here? This is uh, one from your col collection, my friend, a national. With a uh, newly installed Seymour Duncan pickup. That's right. I believe. Yeah. And just, just listen to all the guitar peers yeah. squirm. Can you hear them, John? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the old pickup, it was, a, it was an old uh, piezo uh, pickup that, that yeah, just had super low output. It wasn't, wasn't the best. I mean, it's not a big deal. I can always replace it. Yeah. And it'll be back to stock. But this sounds pretty good. Just, you know, unplugged too. Like, yeah. here's in front of the microphone. Slightly out of tune already. I wonder how that sounded. Well, <laughs> I'm guessing... Probably not that much. I'm guessing, yeah. Even guessing the mic didn't pick it up too much. But um, with it being out of tune, that guitar actually, interestingly, doesn't have a truss rod. So the yeah. neck is actually aluminum, and then it just floats on top of the body, which is a Gibson body that Gibson sold to National. And then National finished it, put their own neck on it, and sold their own electronics. All that all that jazz. Mm -hmm. So it's an interesting guitar and, and kind of one pretty reminiscent of kind of something similar that would have been playing back in the yeah. 40s. Oh, gosh. Yeah, definitely. Well, there's no cross bracing or anything on the on no. the inside of it. It's pretty it's a pretty fragile guitar when you actually consider it yeah the lack of the truss rod that's pretty common for a lot of guitars back then yeah so i don't know when those started to become more commonplace in the manufacture of guitar necks but yeah many of those old ones it was just there's nothing <laughs> yeah completely at the whim of string and yeah. humidity and temperature but this one plays pretty good uh, we did discover the uh the limitations to it yeah. 
we, we fret out on the very last fret. That yeah, is. fretting out at that 15th fret there because it starts to hit the pickup there. There's only like three other frets beyond that. <laughs> you can't even really access them even if you yeah. wanted to. And they uh, all have the same note. Yeah, <laughs> they all have the same <laughs> note. <laughs> it's an interesting guitar. I actually may be able to fix that that last fret. You could, you could put the, the bridge is floating, so you can maybe put a very small shim to raise up that last string it kind of sure, yeah. might make it kind of strange to play what were we talking about i kind of forgot started getting i don't know guitars i started and... talking about the his playing how he was influenced by django some of those half step bins and even some mm. early like you could say pre chuck berry like rock licks almost like at, i think when it comes to the c7 halfway through the f- the uh his solo he does and i don't have the exact notes but it's kind of this in this vein something to that effect mm. he does a little kind of like it gets a little yeah like a little runs. hairy for that time period that was a little you know he was a he was a rebellious sort of a sound like <laughs> les paul in his suit being all rebellious yeah i mean he was i mean in some ways like he was a punk rocker of his day but he was just more into the you know, some of the technical side of, you know, recording sound effects, like phasing, phasing, delays, like, delays. yeah, speeding tape up to get an octave higher, maybe, or anything like that. Yeah. Well, I think, I think he may have used overdubbing. You know. I think he may have used the old style of recording. Cause like I said, a lot of them played at different speeds or and mm-hmm. stuff. So he actually used that to his, his advantage. Yeah. Yeah. You start know. to realize the whole process became a, another instrument. Some of can, these, some of those old Les Paul recordings where he does his his multi tracking, mm-hmm. they're wild, man. So they're wild, they're crazy. Yeah, yeah I mean, there's like 20 different guitars on them, and yeah. for the day that was like absolutely unheard of. When they're used to being Crosby standing in front of a mic. Yeah, I mean, he was still a kind of a jazz blues, the gypsy jazz thing was a big influence, but yeah, he was a pioneering guitarist of his time like both on the recording side and on the playing side both sides of the glass you could say <laughs> what a truly uh, inspirational guy yeah um, it's like they you know should have named the guitar after him or something yeah maybe think. they should have named the company after him because perhaps yeah <laughs> i guess i guess the actual gibson uh brothers i believe they were i think believe there was two of them was there two oh Gibsons? yeah oh i don't know or the, at least one of them i don't know about there was, there was someone <laughs> I think Orville Gibson, maybe? Orville Gibson, yeah. <laughs> I think I was like that, that might be it, though. Popcorn manufacturer. <laughs> I'm going to look that up real quick because... I did have to laugh when I was kind of trying to find some info about like who was in his Les Paul trio. If you just Google Les Paul trio, one of the first couple hits that come up is when uh, Zach Wilde played with Les Paul when he was still doing his... Uh, New York shows. He'd always Zach have Wild. Zach Wild. Of, of Ozzy Osbourne and yes. then Black Label Society. Zach Wild. That very one. That's incredible. Like, he be like he played number in a three little club like, into his 90s. Oh, I know. Yeah. There are videos on YouTube with all sorts of guitar players. Everyone would try to sit in anyone and everyone from Slash to Jeff Beck. You know, everyone was. And rightly so. Oh, exactly. Yeah. Also, I was correct. It was, it was Orville H. Gibson who oh, found nice. Gibson. I don't think that he had a brother, though. Okay. And no if he brother, did, though. He, he didn't have a hand in the <laughs> Gibson guitar. That's funny. Company. I don't know what else I have about this song to talk about. I mean, it's pretty straightforward. It's like, 
He sings it once. There's a guitar solo, and then he sings again, and that's it. <laughs> the, the it's funny because we're so used to these nice luxurious fades, you know, nice long five second, ten second, and then back in the seventies, you know, fifteen twenty second long fades, right? Oh yeah. This song just kind of ends. <laughs> like it's almost like the engineer was like, "We're running out of space," and he sure, just cuts it. Yeah. Oh <laughs> it's, gosh. It's kind of funny to hear because you you just hear this hard stop if you if you listen all the way through to the end of it which i i kind of find fun oh as far as like when it's decaying out and it, yeah well it doesn't decay out oh, it, it just it just stops just, oh like I, I don't think i noticed that when i was yeah it's, it's definitely one of those things that almost nobody but you know people like me will notice because fades people buy records for the fades john is that why is that why they buy it's all them about the fades? the fades just like the haircut too it's all about the fades the fades that's right yeah <laughs> They sell records with the pictures and then with the nice, easy sound mm-hmm. blending into the next song. I do have a fun uh, quote from Les Paul, though, kind of about his time when he recorded with Bing Crosby. And he uh, said, Bing was a sucker for a guitar and that particular song referring to it's been a long long time was a case of you don't have to play a lot of notes you just have to play the right notes and i think he played most of those right notes i think he got most of yes. them right i think he got most of them right and being saying a lot of the right notes too is it's just such a cool voice yeah it's so iconic with with his christmas album i think that with an album like that it becomes ingrained in everyone even if you don't know it that voice becomes ingrained in you as a little person just from it being played around the holiday season. And then when you eventually go on and discover some of his other songs, kind of, even if you aren't thinking about it, it definitely hits the nostalgia buttons. Oh, sure. Yeah. It gets right here. Amazing for how old it is. Yeah. It's incredible. When I say, when I say it's not a good recording, what I mean is, if you were to compare it to the modern standards of recording. Oh, sure. You definitely. know, it has a high noise floor mm-hmm. and it doesn't have quite the frequency response that, you know, a recording today has. And they only use one mic and there wasn't any mixing. You know, the mixing was the performance. It's not that I'm not trying to say I don't like these recordings because it's just the opposite. I've said I adore this recording. It's just it's amazing sure. to me how how much more difficult making a a record was back then yeah yeah and it sometimes you just had to be happy with what you got you know in the sense you just have to let it live and be happy with it even if you you think you can do it better but you can't we all know you can't and we're not wasting another wax (laughs) discs i can't say that wax disc it's a a tongue twister disc (laughs) wax disc so fun little thing i noticed though apparently it was recorded on July 12th, 1945. July 12th is my wife's birthday. Really? So how about that? Not 1945, though. <laughs> <laughs> I certainly hope not. Yes. <laughs> does, she, does she like this song? Does she know it? I don't think I played this one for her, but I told her, like, yeah, we're talking about the song. And at first, I had it mixed up with the Harry James version with the orchestra. Like, it's the song at the end of uh, Avengers Endgame. Uh-huh. So, like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. She's like, yeah, that one. And then I realized, like, no, that's the other version. And that was the other number one hit song from 1945 called it's a long long time it's been a long long, long i guess time. i should have specified because yeah. to me I, I was only ever introduced to this one i guess i was 
introduced yeah. to this one first. I've heard the other version un- yeah. unknowingly. And the other version is great too, like I said. But it's kind of interesting comparing the two because one's so almost bomb, not bombastic, but, you know, big, you know, with trumpets, you know, strings, like belting it out, very, just a big orchestral sound. And then you have this one with four instruments, voice, lead guitar, rhythm guitar, and upright bass. So. Yeah. You know what's interesting that I'm just thinking of now? Mm-hmm. The acoustic space that they recorded in, I don't think was actually that important because all the reflections were covered up by the noise floor. <laughs> oh, yeah. You don't get all those like nuance. No, you don't hear any of them. It, everything so. like yeah, yeah, you can tell it sounds further away because it's quieter and yeah. there's a little less high end. And those are the two main cues that your brain listens for to determine how far something is. If it has a lot of high end because those frequency wavelengths are short. And then if it's loud, obviously it's going to be closer. Yeah. That's actually a good little mixing trick if, if you're trying to push something in the background. It doesn't necessarily have to be reverbed out. Mm-hmm. You can just carve off a little top end and make it quieter. I know it seems simple, but you'd be amazed how much people just like swim stuff in reverb. And yeah. Just, and then oh, yeah. It sounds like it's far back. It's yeah. Like, oh. Everything with the reverbs just kind of fighting each other in a way. Yeah, well, reverb, I have a love-hate relationship with reverb. Yeah, so do I. That and delay, you know. As a guitar player, I'm just like, yeah, more is probably better. And that's usually what ends up happening for so many people, myself sometimes too. You just like, especially if you want to be like, yeah, I want this guitar solo to be monstrous. So you throw on the delay with the verb and everything. It's like, yeah. And then it probably all just sounds like, yeah, it sounds like mush. We actually can't hear anything. (laughs) This last weekend at the show, we had a guitar player and we were in this uh, very large room and the system we were on was not that, that large. Like it was big enough, but definitely wasn't going to overpower the room. So mm-hmm. uh, I I asked the guitar player if he could uh, turn down the reverb, <laughs> and he uh, insisted that I I put some in his ears because he, <laughs> he said he couldn't play with that, which was fine. Oh but <laughs> it was just kind of funny because when you get so used to having that extra little sustain on the end yeah. of your notes, it can really mess with you when it you hear can, it dry. When you're not used to it, yeah. And I've tried to develop my playing, especially once started to use in ears a lot more to be able to just like don't push don't fight don't like you know dig into the strings more than necessary and try to just almost like imagine the extra sustain even if it might not be there mm-hmm. and try to just like play it as if it is even if it isn't because yeah like eventually you start to realize that bigger spaces you don't want that much reverb because so much of it is just in the room it's a, such a to mess. the listener's ears yeah. when they hear it, you know, unless they're like right in front of the speaker and then they're just going to go deaf. And what's, <laughs> what's unfortunate about those situations is a lot of times people will say, hey, this sounds muddy. And there's, n- there's not much you can do about that as an engineer in, in a situation where it's over like, let's say you're just in a gymnasium with no sound absorption and you have a really small PA. The only thing you can can really hope to do is make the vocals intelligible yeah so those are going to be blaringly loud and then everything else is kind of going to be this soup of a of sound and uh, of course when there's solos and stuff you can make those intelligible but sure it's not going to be this like clear pristine mix as if you were listening to it at an outdoor amphitheater like nashville has an amphitheater 
the Ascend Amphitheater. That's it's an outdoor venue, and I love going to the shows there because I just think it sounds great. Uh, the engineers mm-hmm. do a really great job. Not so in a gymnasium, though. Yeah, no, not so much. Not so much. Yeah, I used to play on the road with a guy who is, you know, he was a player in as much as the fact that like he would know his part and just do that part. Like kind of, I think of them as like, not the improviser type or mm. like the necessarily the creator type, but almost like the more the blue collar side man who would just like know which chords to play and play it. I mean, he always had this simple motto. It's like, man, you're playing in an arena, nothing past eighth notes. I don't play anything past eighth notes because then it just gets lost. I mean, like, he's, <laughs> no sixteenth notes, no anything. Like, just eighth notes. That's all I go to. <laughs> yeah. And there's some wisdom to I'm that. I was going to say, in a sense, he's not so wrong. Practical. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> That's like, there's a story about Def Leppard when they're, I think, I think they're making their first album, first or second album. And they're trying to write these big, complicated rock songs. You know, they're, they're going for that huge rock and roll sound oh, yeah the producer was basically like do you want it to sound good because if you want it to sound good we're talking about bar chords yeah probably whole notes sure. maybe half notes and very simplistic riffs and then you listen to their songs even down to the drum beat everything's pretty simple oh yeah you know, the guitar riffs are nothing like they're they sound great and they you know they hit but they you know they're not these huge 30 second note no it's monsters. not like it's not like Yes or Emerson Lake and Palmer or any of the like crazier or maybe in some like sticks or something like that. Yeah, like, right. so. <laughs> so, although with today's technology, you can you can get away with a lot more than than you could. Sure. Yeah. Definitely. So. Just more gated verb on the snare. Just as <laughs> much. We're talking twelve second delay with like. A 10 oh, second. Yes. Now you're gate. speaking my language. Yes. <laughs> Hard cut. Yes. <laughs> With a warm delay setting. Just a very warm delay. <laughs> well, I think we've I think we've gone off I think we topic shot our, here. Yeah, I think we shot our bolt. Just starting to ramble on now about playing in arenas like either one of us have done much of that. <laughs> oh yeah. I, I do a lot of arenas, I tell <laughs> yeah, you what. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, we, we appreciate you guys listening. Yes, indeed. Thank you so much. My name has been John. I'm Kevin. This is Coffee and Consoles. We'll catch you next time. Long days and pleasant nights, my friend. If you feel like getting in contact with us, feel free to send us an email at coffeeandconsoles at gmail.com. That's coffee, the word and, consoles, C-O-N-S-O-L-E-S, at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks. Bye.